Father, we come before you and we do proclaim your greatness and your holiness. And Lord, who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for the way you revealed yourself. And Lord, we thank you especially this morning for the way you revealed yourself through the prophet Zechariah. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we open your word. Lord, you've promised uh, by the ministry of your spirit to give your people understanding uh, as we seek to rightly divide your word. And uh, understanding that it does not end with uh, just intellectual comprehension and assent, but, Lord, that extends to our wills and to our hearts, to our emotions. I pray, Lord, that you would inflame our hearts for the glory and the beauty of our Savior this morning. And, Lord, teach us. Teach us to know more uh, about him and to love him more and to obey. I pray in your son's name. Amen. Guys, <clears throat> be seated. I'll ask you to bear with me this morning. I this week got some kind of, uh, I don't know if it's allergies or what, but hopefully it doesn't come across too much in my voice here. Uh, this is week three uh, of our series on the Messiah in the Old Testament. Um, we skipped several weeks between weeks one and two. Uh, the first week, probably about a month ago, was on Genesis 3, <coughs> uh, and we saw uh, the hope in the promised seed, the seed promised to Eve, uh, who would crush the, the head of the serpent or the power behind the serpent, um, understanding that to be a, a, a prediction of Jesus, a prediction of the Messiah. Uh, and then last week we looked at, and that was just last week, right? Yeah. We looked at Psalm 110 and saw the, the progress uh, in Revelation to that point when David wrote Psalm 110, he understood and more had been revealed uh, to talk about the glories of this ultimate priest, ultimate king, and conquering warrior. Uh, so we saw a lot last week about the glories of the Messiah. <coughs> and uh, each week, to kind of remind us of the foundation uh, of the study, I've mentioned Luke 24 and Jesus' interaction with two of his followers on the road to Emmaus uh, after his resurrection, uh, when they were lamenting what had happened and uh, were just devastated because the Messiah had the Messiah, who they thought would be the Messiah, had suffered uh, crucifixion. And he rebuked them, saying, you should have understood uh, both the glories and the sufferings of the Messiah from all that the scriptures have taught. And he opened the Old Testament scriptures to them, and probably kind of like we've done in these three weeks, uh, showed them from a few texts, select texts, uh, just on the road to Emmaus there, uh, what it was that they should have grasped uh, to understand that their Messiah would both suffer and uh, be glorified. So to this point in our study, we've seen more uh, about the glories of the Messiah. Um, he came his first time, obviously, to suffer and to die. Uh, but last week in Psalm 110, we saw a lot about what will happen uh, when he returns. <coughs> uh, today in our text in Zechariah 12, we'll see more details of what uh, those men on the road to Emmaus could have understood from the scriptures that they had uh, in terms of the nature of the suffering that God had planned for the Messiah. Uh, now, before <clears throat> we open to the text of Scripture, uh, I want us to think a little bit about the fixation that, I, I'll say we, but people tend to have on what's going to happen in the future. Uh, and as I thought about this, I just started actually Googling it. And I had forgotten, but you might remember back in 2012, uh, much was made of the fact that the Mayan calendar was going to run out. Uh, and as I looked at uh, Google Trends, search trends, uh, in 2012 and then again in 2017 when it was thought that there was going to be a planet colliding with Earth, I think in September of last year it was supposed to happen, uh, searches go up for apocalypse and the end of the world and what did Nostradamus, or yeah, is that his name, Nostradamus, uh, predict for this year? Nostradamus was a 16th century, I think that's right, French physician who made predictions, uh, none of which has ever come true, but people like to think they came true. So people get to thinking about what could happen in the end. They think about pollution. They think about nuclear war, Trump getting elected, what's North Korea going to do? And they start looking to things like Nostradamus or uh, NASA actually has posted things. So <clears throat> one of their uh, assurances to readers, and they, I guess they waited until the day after the Mayan calendar ran out to post this. They said, the world did not end yesterday. And, and they, their stated reason was, our planet has been getting along just fine for more than four billion years. So I think we know their, their math is a little off on that. 
But they say, so here's their assurance. Credible scientists worldwide know of no threat associated with 2012. And I don't know about you, but to me, that's not very assuring. I mean, if we have to look to NASA or to scientists with um, you know, their interpretation of data uh, to figure out why we shouldn't be fearful or what we can expect to happen, uh, that's not very confidence-inspiring and it's not very comforting. Um, but, you know, how many of us click on those things? Maybe not many of us. I'll try to resist the urge. My wife was just telling me this morning because she knew I was going to mention this. <clears throat> she saw this morning that there's uh, some kind of panic going on somewhere that there's a skull-shaped asteroid that's going to hit us on Halloween. And I don't know who was saying it's not going to happen, but the, the, the headline she saw just this morning was it's not going to happen. But we know that these kind of things, that, that men and their speculations, that they're fallible and foolish and passing away. Uh, like Peter says, uh, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And so this morning we'll turn our attention to the prophecy, uh, one of the prophecies that Peter would have in mind there uh, as we look at the text of Zechariah. <clears throat> By way of background, uh, Zechariah, as you may know, is one of the minor prophets, uh, and they have that label, minor, uh, because of their, their short length relative to prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel that are much longer. Uh, and one of the most helpful things uh, that's helped me in my study of the minor, minor prophets, uh, I think it was my second semester in seminary, we had to study this in a survey course, and it was pointed out for the first time to me that uh, the minor prophets make up a literary whole. Uh, that kind of like the Psalms, um, they were intentionally compiled in the order that they are in our uh, Old Testament. And in all likelihood, even the authors knew that they were contributing uh, to a literary whole that is the Book of the Twelve. That's how it's known <coughs> in the Hebrew Scriptures, is as the Book of the Twelve. Uh, and we see this because there are connections that seem to show a lot of intentionality between one book and another that the subsequent authors were picking up on and tying their prophecy to the, the prophecies that came before. So if we look at the Book of the Twelve, the Minor Prophets, as one piece of literature, uh, we can identify a purpose, and we can state the purpose like this. The Book of the Twelve teaches that the Day of the Lord represents the Lord's certain coming judgment. He loves his people Israel and will just as certainly bring their restoration through and following the judgments of that great and awesome day. So you guys might recognize that terminology from whatever reading or studying you've had the opportunity to do in the Minor Prophets. The Day of the Lord, that's something that's repeated frequently in the Minor Prophets. And of course, the New Testament authors pick up on that uh, theme and that wording also. Now, as a literary whole, we can identify the purpose. We can also identify kind of a flow of thought, a, a sort of a, an outline, a narrative sequence. Uh, part one is <clears throat> mostly uh, talking about judgment and restoration in the day of the Lord, and that goes from Hosea through Joel. Uh, part two is the Lord's judgment and mercy on the nations. Uh, that's Amos through Habakkuk. And then part three is the day of the Lord and judgment and restoration uh, from Zephaniah through Malachi. And that's where we find Zechariah. So the sort of section of the Minor Prophets that Zechariah is in is the portion that talks about the day of the Lord and judgment and restoration. So that'll kind of frame the way we walk through Zechariah 12 is to have that in mind. Uh, worth noting also is the fact that uh, the prophets are very repetitive. So if you look at the structure and the purpose and the themes and the way they get picked up throughout Isaiah, and then Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel, and then the Book of the Twelve, there's a lot of consistency uh, to where it talks about a lot of the same things. Uh, the judgment of Israel that God is going to bring against them by means of the nations, and then he'll turn around and punish the nations for their aggression against Israel, and then he'll save Israel and the nations. That's kind of the sequence, and it kind of gets a little repetitive in some places, uh, so it's not all you know, neat and ordered. Uh, but those are kind of the themes that are consistent through the prophets. Uh, as we look at our text today, you'll notice eight times uh, here in this text from Zechariah 12, 1 through 13, 1, eight times uh, he says, in that day. And that's referencing the day of the Lord. And that's the same day, by the way, that we saw last week in Psalm 110, when the Lord or Yahweh will make 
the enemies of David's Adonai a footstool for his feet. So that day when the ultimate warrior, ultimate king, ultimate priest will come and have his victory is this day of the Lord. And it's not just a single day. This is describing that time period uh, when the Messiah will return uh, in his ultimate victory in his second coming. <coughs> uh, Zechariah is pretty much simultaneous with Haggai, which comes right before Zechariah in our Bibles. Uh, they, they started prophesying within two months of each other. You can tell because there's markers of the Jewish calendar uh, in their texts. And their ministries were uh, following sort of the abandonment of the work on the temple. Uh, Cyrus had decreed that, uh, that Israel could return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And that, that work was undertaken faithfully for a time, uh, as recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, but by the time of Haggai and Zechariah's ministries, the people had ceased their work. They had become discouraged. And in part, these prophets were encouraging Israel to be faithful uh, to re- be restored in their hearts to the Lord, uh, to restore their worship, and as a part of that, as the fruit of that, to work on the restoration of the temple. Uh, Zechariah, in uh, pursuing that purpose of encouraging the people that way, he teaches a lot about the Messiah. Uh, the first nine chapters of Zechariah are largely having to do with the first coming of the Messiah. Uh, the, the ending chapters, especially 12 to 14, and we're looking at 12 today, are mainly about the second coming of Messiah. Uh, as we saw last week, and I don't know, maybe some of you guys had the chance to go back and, and look at your New Testaments and see uh, how much Psalm 110 is tied in. I think that that probably came across uh, at least some last week as we looked at it. Similar thing is true of Zechariah. Uh, it's referenced in the New Testament at least 71 times. Uh, a third of those references come in the Gospels, and 31 in Revelation. Uh, uh, Revelation is dependent more only on Ezekiel than on Zechariah. So John very much had, uh, especially these chapters, 12 to 14 in mind, as he talked about what's going to come in the future. Something, by the way, we won't get into today because there's just not the time to look in that kind of detail. Uh, Jesus, especially, when he talks about the future, he handles uh, these texts in such a way that he's not necessarily directly quoting them, but he speaks in a lot of specifics about what's going to happen uh, at his return. And you can tell, if you look closely at the details of a text like this, Zechariah 12, that he's taking his uh, understanding, at least in part, of course he's receiving new revelation also, but he's taking his understanding at least in part from what he's understood from these prophetic scriptures and the details as these things are discussed through the prophets, as they're discussed in the New Testament and all the way into the book of Revelation, the details are remarkably the same uh, in text after text after text. Uh, so again, as we uh, think about what's going to happen in the future uh, and, and maybe want to know the circumstances, um, look here. There's, there's uh, God's revelation here that tells us for certain uh, who it is that's bringing things to pass and who will bring the consummation of all things to pass. Uh, another thing just to mention in terms of Zechariah, especially, uh, really the whole book, because it speaks so much to the Messiah's work, both in his first coming and in his second coming, is that uh, this work establishes the foundation for what the apostles build on later when they develop their Christology and their doctrine that has to do with soteriology and the last things. Uh, they're dependent on these. So it's beneficial to us to look and see our Messiah uh, in these texts so that we have an understanding of what the apostles are sometimes assuming uh, we know from the Old Testament because they studied it and they would expect us to study it. They've, they've instructed us to study it also. Uh, so turning to the text, let's go ahead and read the text through. Uh, Zechariah 12 starting with verse 1, and I'll read through chapter 13, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem... It will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. 
and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a firepot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves so that they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. That's the word of the Lord. Starting with verse 1 here in chapter 12. We see the siege of Israel. <clears throat> and notice first the emphasis on who it is that's speaking. Uh, the burden of the word of Yahweh. Um, that word burden uh, literally means uh, pronouncement, but it has a heavy sense that's captured by what the NAS has there. I think ESV has oracle. Uh, but it's a heavy uh, uh piece of information that God wants to give to his people, heavy because it concerns judgment. And as we read through the text there, you may have seen the heaviness, especially as reflected uh, in the mourning and lamenting that comes at the end uh, of the text there. So it's the burden of the word of Yahweh, and then a little bit repetitive, it says in the NAS, thus declares the Lord, or thus declares Yahweh. It literally, again, it kind of says the announcement of Yahweh. So it's the pronouncement of Yahweh, the burden of Yahweh, and the announcement of Yahweh. So this is his announcement, his burden uh, to reveal to his people. And you'll see that continued emphasis throughout the text with the first person singular uh, voice in the, um, the verbs. Verse 2, I will make. Verse 3, I will make. Verse 4, I will strike, I will open, and I will strike. Verse 6, I will make. And then with the same reference in verses 7 and 8, Yahweh will save, Yahweh will protect. So speaking of himself in the third person. And then again in verse 9, I will seek. In verse 10, I will pour out. Uh, so it's Yahweh, it's, it's the Lord speaking in the first person throughout here. This is his announcement, his, his burden to give to his people, to, to share with them. Uh, and notice the way he identifies himself. Back in verse 1 here, the burden of the word of Yahweh concerning Israel thus declares Yahweh who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. So what are those three things? He, he stretches out the heavens and lays the foundations of the earth and forms the spirit of man. Does that make you think of anything that God does? creation. So he's identifying himself as the creator, the one who stretches out the heavens and establishes the earth and even forms the spirit of man within him. And that matches the pattern in Genesis of creation. So he's identifying himself 
as the creator, and he's giving this word about what to expect. The creator is also the consummator of all things. And so here again, where would we look for what's coming? Then to the one who has created everything, has planned everything perfectly, and is bringing it to pass. Verse 2. Behold, I myself, and there's an emphasis there because he puts in the, the pronoun and it's not necessary, it's entailed in the verb. So emphasizing, I myself am going to do this. I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And this is the theme I noted from the book of the 12, that God will use the nations to judge Israel. He will judge the nations for their aggression, and he will save Israel, and he will save the nations. But this is that first part. He will use the nations to judge Israel. And actually, it's the second part also. He'll, he'll make Israel a judgment on the nations. Uh, here he says in verse 2, uh, he's going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. Uh, in verse 3, he knows that this is all the nations of the earth uh, that are gathered against Judah and against Israel. So kind of imagine the whole world, all the nations in the world, gathering against one city. And imagine how that's going to look militarily. It's going to look like this is going to be pretty easy to do. And he uses a couple of metaphors here, the first one being a cup. Uh, and so the idea is they're just going to look at Jerusalem like it's a, a cup that they can just uh, drink up, no problem, drink it dry. Uh, it's going to be no problem at all. But that cup that they think, okay, I'm going to accomplish my goal here, you know, they've coalesced against Judah and Jerusalem to accomplish their purposes, uh, that cup is going to turn around and cause reeling and cause stumbling to them, cause them to lose their footing. <clears throat> the second metaphor uh, comes in verse uh, 3 also. Uh, in that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will be severely injured. Uh, the heavy stone, uh, that would have been like a, basically a, a weight stone that would have been used to, uh, for strength training uh, and for sport. Um, and again, so the, the idea again is they're going to come and think this is going to be easy. I can lift this. And when it says they'll be severely injured, the idea is kind of a tearing of the flesh. They're going to go to lift this and it's going to be something that's going to come back on them or just be too much for them to handle and it's going to devastate them. Thinking about this, it, it made me think of my children and some of my daughters in particular, one in particular, I won't tell you which one, but she'll... Uh, because she's bigger than her little brother, she'll think that she can pick on him and kind of make sport of it and enjoy it until he responds with more strength than she realizes he has. And next thing you know, she's coming and weeping and wailing because she's been hurt by her little brother. And that even that probably doesn't quite capture this because uh, the, the, the magnitude of the injury and the confusion that's going to be caused uh, to the peoples is far greater than what... Uh, Luke is able to do to his sister. <clears throat> anyway, though, this is the recurring prophetic theme, that God will judge Israel through the nations, but he will judge the nations for touching what he refers to as the apple of his eye. Um, and that's something, you know, we don't have time to go through all the places of Zechariah, or let alone the Old Testament, where he makes promises to and prioritizes uh, his people, and especially as represented by his city, Jerusalem. Verse 4, uh, in that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. So kind of two things are happening here. He's making Israel uh, an occasion for judgment for the nations, and he's also active in thwarting the nations in this. And this is not without precedent. This is something that God tends to do. He did it in the Exodus against the Egyptians from Exodus 14. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and clouds and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. And of course, the Egyptians were right about that, and it was their demise. Verse 5. 
Later, in Judges 7, you guys remember Gideon and his army of 300? <clears throat> in that case, God caused mass confusion among the Midianites and the Amalekites, who it describes as being as many as the sands of the seashore and numbered together against Gideon and his 300 men. And God confused them so that they turned their swords against each other throughout the whole army. And Gideon, with his 300 men, defeated this massive cross-national army. Uh, so this is the kind of thing that God does. And he's saying he will repeat this uh, at this time when the nations are gathered together against Israel, against Jerusalem. God will thwart this incredibly strong military alliance formed against Israel. But, he says in verse 4, over the house of Judah... I will open my eyes while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Uh, so it's not just that he will confuse the nations and allow Israel to see. He himself, the decisive actor in this, is God in his person. He's going to have his eyes, his covenant gaze on his people uh, for their salvation, for their good. Verse 5, Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem, through the Lord of hosts, their God. So the attack will come against Judah first, the outlying areas, before it comes to Jerusalem. So you see here the, the clans of Judah uh, are mentioned first. Uh, but they will remember God's words of promise concerning Jerusalem. Uh, and an example of that, probably one of the best examples, comes a little bit earlier in Zechariah in chapter 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. So when the people of Judah are thinking on scripture and what's happening and they're seeing God start to work for them and to accomplish this victory, they think about these promises to Jerusalem. And it's, it's the fact that God is the God of Jerusalem and he's made promises that will not fail. And he's bringing those promises to pass. It strengthens them to actually be the means of accomplishing this task of defending Jerusalem. First defending Judah and accomplishing God's victory there and then defending Jerusalem and seeing it to it that the city does not fall. <coughs> Verse 6. In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves or cut grain so that they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples. The, uh, the fire pot, it's, it's a pot of fire. And that kind of pot, uh, we, we find especially in Exodus, is uh, used by the priests uh, in the sacrificial system. So uh, as he's talking about having fire in uh, the kind of vessel that was set apart for uh, God's holy purposes, uh, there's an emphasis here again that it's God and his holiness that's accomplishing this. And the use of these two uh, sort of metaphors, again, uh, or similes, like a fire pot among, like, kindling or, you know, dry pieces of wood, and then probably even more emphatic, a flaming torch among cut grain. Uh, makes me think of when uh, Samson tied the foxes together and set their tails on fire and sent them into the field and just torched that dry uh, grain field uh, that belonged to the Philistines. Uh, this kind of material, kindling and cut grain, it's just explosively flammable. And when the nations who gather together against Israel think they're going to have an easy time uh, accomplishing their victory, it's going to turn back on them in this way, and they'll just be consumed by it. So the spiritual encouragement that they receive from seeing this happen in their midst and seeing that it's going to lead to the saving of Jerusalem it, 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 it encourages them and strengthens them for military victory. God uses the means of their encouragement and their uh, military might that's, that's empowered uh, by this hope of his promises and accomplishes this victory uh, through them. So that's verses 1 to 6. The, uh, in that day, the siege of Israel that's coming. With verse 7, uh, we transition to seeing the Savior of Israel and this is just kind of a description from another perspective of those first six verses. What was described in terms of the threat against God's people and the judgment of their enemies, these things are now described as God's actions to save Israel as led by their Messiah. Verse 7, The Lord also will save the tents of Judah 
first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. So the scattered, uh, those who are in tents, um, and this could even be referring to the, the Jews cast abroad uh, in the diaspora, in the, in the exile that continues even to this day. They will be saved first. And kind of the point is that Yahweh is the Savior, the Messiah is the Savior, and he saves freely. doesn't matter if you're part of the house of David or the, the, you, know, the, you have the privilege of living in the fortified city of Jerusalem. God saves freely without respect to status. And he's pleased to save uh, the ones dwelling in tents first. Verse 8, in that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So he will save first the clans of Judah, but he will also be a strong savior and a defender of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. <clears throat> now remember back to what we said about David last week, that he was just, the reference to David would be the reference to the most powerful man in Israel, their greatest king, and probably what they would think of as the most powerful man in the world, the ideal king. And so Zechariah is telling them they're going to be a nation of Davids, a nation of men like that, a nation with courage, a nation of men after God's own heart. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. So like God and in fact God. The angel of Yahweh repeatedly in the Old Testament is God's saving presence with his people. The angel of Yahweh always is God. Occasionally you'll find a place where it's a messenger of Yahweh and it's less clear that it's God himself. But this, we refer to frequently as a theophany or an, a, an appearance of God or an appearance of the second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And that's well understood by the time Zechariah is giving this prophecy that the people of Israel here in this siege and their salvation will be led by the Messiah, who is, in fact, God. And notice again uh, that, that God, Yahweh, is still speaking in the first person here. And that's probably particularly noteworthy. What does he say? He follows that up in verse 9. And in that day, so it will be him, the angel of the Lord before them, in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So again, think to last week in Psalm 110, this is that ultimate Davidic king, that ultimate king, the ultimate high priest, and a conquering warrior uh, who's even a greater warrior than David. Verse 10, continuing in the first person, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And I think the ESV <coughs> gets this better. You might see in the NAS, it looks like uh, this could be a reference to the Holy Spirit. Um, and that term, ruach, uh, occasionally is uh, in the Old Testament. But I think here, especially given verse 1, that God is the one who puts the spirit or forms the spirit of man within him, this is a reference to the kind of spirit God promises to give uh, in the new covenant. And, and this is a depiction here of God's new covenant realities descending on his people. He's giving them uh, a heart of flesh and removing their heart of stone. He's giving them a heart, uh, and here it says, a spirit of grace, pain, a spirit of unmerited favor, uh, something that they couldn't have earned or deserved. That word that's translated grace is very much what we understand from charis, the New Testament word that talks about grace. This is nothing, again, kind of maybe pointing back to uh, the fact that it's the clans of Judah that are saved first. This is without respect to any merit on the part of the people receiving it. God is just freely pouring out on them. And there's a, a, a picture of abundance there. Pouring out on them this spirit of grace and of supplication or of pleas for mercy. <clears throat> so, again, I just feel the need to emphasize this is God speaking in the first person. That's clear throughout. And this is just a point at which this is particularly important. So he will pour out on his people a spirit of grace and of supplication. And then he says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. That word translated pierced 
uh, the Hebrew word behind it, dakar, uh, means to pierce through. And for that to make any sense, it has to be an idea of piercing through flesh. Now, the, the controversy in that should be pretty readily apparent, the idea that God would have flesh and that he would be pierced. And furthermore, so that word also in every Old Testament usage is talking about being stabbed to death. So there's very much an idea of dying involved here. Uh, so I don't have any examples of ancient Jew- Jewish treatments of how they dealt with that, uh, but modern Jewish translators and interpreters go to pains to try to avoid what that's saying, that God has flesh and that God dies. So I won't bore you with all the details of how they do that, but suffice it to say, they do it in such creative ways that it's evident they know the text, and they they have a certain respect for the text. They don't want to change the text. They know that that's what the text is teaching. So Zechariah is clearly teaching that the Messiah would be God himself who would take on flesh and who would be mortally wounded, pierced by his own people. And then he's teaching that sometime in the future, his people would see the one whom they would put to death and who is now coming for their salvation. So think about this, starting in verse 7. Zechariah is clearly teaching the deity, the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of the Messiah, together with his future glorious return for judgment and ultimate victory. So think again about those men on the road to Emmaus and the fact that they were just devastated that the one they thought might be the Messiah had died. If they were paying attention, like Jesus rebuked them, if they should have been paying attention to their scripture, they could have seen pretty clearly that their Messiah would die and that they would have the privilege of looking on the one who was pierced. So again, just to note, have confidence in where to look for the details of what will come to pass. Uh, You guys probably are familiar with this text just because it's picked up on uh, in the New Testament. Uh, John points to this in chapter 19 when he's talking about Jesus' crucifixion. He says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he continues, For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, which also says they shall look on him whom they pierced. And something to think about here, and this may not sort of catch all of us, but it might catch some of us. There could be a tendency to sort of read the New Testament flatly and to read a text like that and think, oh, what Zechariah was talking about, that's come to pass. And in some sense, absolutely, it has. But you see, as we look through the detail of what Zechariah was talking about, he was primarily talking about things that are still to come. So this can make sense of why John goes later, even though he says fulfillment there in John 19. In Revelation 1, he writes... Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So this is still to come. And there again, just detail of what our hope is and what's going to come to pass. Who's bringing it to pass? Who's in control? And who has given us detailed and specific revelation about what it's going to look like? So that is the Savior of Israel through the first half of verse 10 there. Transition here in the middle of verse 10 to the salvation of Israel. And the initial manifestation of their salvation, which really is what it is for each of us when we come to Christ, is intense grief. And that's, of course, it's mixed with joy, but I think we'll see here in the text what's emphasized by Zechariah is the the grief and the mourning that's entailed uh, with salvation. Uh, Note also, so, so they will look on me, whom they have pierced, and then there's a shift here in the second half of verse 10 to talking about him. And I think commentators have rightly seen here sort of a Trinitarian implication. Yahweh can speak of the Messiah both both in the first person because the Messiah is Yahweh, and he can speak of him in the second person because the Messiah is the Son. So I think there's a Trinitarian implication there. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, 
like the morning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Now that's a reference uh, to the death of good king Josiah at the hands of Pharaoh Necho on the battlefield. Uh, and the, the writer of Chronicles makes much of that, kind of setting the precedent for what a, a grievous mourning over a worthy figure looks like. Um, he says, all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Then Jeremiah chanted a lament for Josiah. All the female and male singers uh, speak about Josiah in their lamentations to this day. So even as the chronicler is writing, and he's recording much earlier history, that kind of lamentation uh, is, is exemplified in Israel by what they lamented over this good king, Josiah. Now, as I thought about this, I, you know, I wasn't there, obviously, and I'm not part of Israel to, for that to really grip me, how devastating it was to lose a good king like that. But I think back to you know, one funeral that I've been to in particular, where it was, I think, probably a 20-year-old girl had died. Uh, and I remember seeing her dad just overcome with grief, and he couldn't even stand on his knees and his family around him, and he's just weeping, just wailing and mourning. Uh, and I think that's the kind of just visceral response that Zechariah is communicating to us uh, when the people look on their Messiah, on their God, who was pierced for them, and whom, in fact, they pierced. There's that, that corporate responsibility that they'll see because they're Israel, and they know their responsibility for his piercing. Verses 12 to 13, uh, you probably noticed this when I read it the first time, there's a great deal of repetition. Uh, something to note that doesn't come across in every translation, uh, when it says by itself and by themselves, uh, in the NAS at least, that's the same word uh, in each case, and it really just means alone. So I'm going to read it that way. The land will mourn every family alone, the family of the house of David, so anyone with royal status alone, and their wives alone, the family of the house of Nathan, who probably is David's son, so not just the royalty, but the sons of royalty, and not just them, but their wives, the family of the house of Nathan alone, and their wives alone, the family of the house of Levi, so not just the royal family, but the priestly alone, and their wives alone, and their children. Shimei, Shimei was the son of Levi. The family of the Shimeiites alone, and their wives alone. The mourning here is universal. It, it is all of God's people who remain. And something we get more from other texts, we don't see this as clearly in Zechariah here, but a lot of them have died. I think it's two-thirds uh, die in the judgment that God brings against Israel from the nations. Two-thirds of them die. So this is the remaining people at this time. Uh, it singles out wives. Uh, you know, typically, of course, the, the husband is the head of the wife, and they can be treated together because she's going to be submissive and he's going to be her head. But salvation is individual, and that's what the emphasis is on here. Each individual and each individual's wife alone will look on him and will grieve, will mourn in this way. If each and every individual is saved, which is what this is depicting, then the whole nation is saved just as God promised. Chapter 13, verse 1. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. And by the way, it's clear just sort of from the way the text is structured, this verse is included in what came before. So this is kind of the right conclusion to chapter 12. And I think it's a good conclusion because it emphasizes what this salvation is about. This is not primarily or really even remotely a political salvation. This is a salvation from sin. And uh, this is sort of a fitting way to uh, come back around uh, in our study of the Messiah and remember what preceded the first text we looked at in Genesis 3, the fall and the entrance of sin into the world, and the fact that death was promised. And of course, here we see death continuing. You know, death continues to be a reality all the way through Jesus' second coming in judgment. But it's not without hope. It's never without hope. And that was the beauty of Genesis 3.15, is that although 
God had promised them in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And of course they did. They turned away from God. They were spiritually dead. But in that same day, God gave them hope. He gave them a gospel, an initial word of the Lord Jesus Christ by which they could be saved. And there's evidence, of course, like we looked at, that Eve was saved, that she hoped in her Messiah, and I think Adam did too. And then repeatedly you see these Old Testament figures remembering this promise, having as the substance of their hope the promised seed, the one who would come, the one who would put away death forever. You know, it's just a, a hint we get of it there in Genesis 3.15. He would have his heel crushed. You know, he would, he would suffer in some way, and he would crush the head of the power behind the serpent. He would have a victory. There would be glory, but it's just an initial look at that. As things become developed, there's more and more detail, more and more evidence and ground for hope in what God has pierced. So as we get here to verse 1 of chapter 13, we see that initial problem that started in Genesis chapter 3. What was necessary was this opening of this fountain. And the reason is for sin and for impurity. And this is what will take care of that. As it says a little later in chapter 13, verse 9, I almost wanted to take the exposition all the way to there because that's, it's just, it's glorious. It was necessary that Yahweh's sword would be directed against himself, against his shepherd. He says, they will call on my name and I will answer them. I'm sorry, that's chapter 13. I'm sorry, it's verse 7. Verse 7, awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, close companion, equal. It's, it's, it's the son that's the reference there. It's the Messiah. It was necessary for God to turn his own sword on himself, on his shepherd. So I think we have to ask, how does this apply to us? You know, especially as we look back at a text like Zechariah, and it's so clearly directed with a lot of references that are very distinctly uh, Jewish and Israelite, all the talk of Jerusalem, which is a distant place for us, not something that um, we probably readily identify with, although the more we're immersed in Scripture, I think, the more our hope is probably tied to what Jesus will do with Israel and with Jerusalem. But I think one of the things that we need to take from here is emphasized in that last portion is that salvation is individual. Each of us must look to this pierced God and mourn on account of our own sin. As James writes, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, as I mentioned earlier, salvation, uh, and especially as emphasized by Zechariah here, entails this mourning. I think absolutely it also entails joy. But if you've never mourned and grieved over your sin, you perhaps have never considered fully what it is that God has accomplished and why he's accomplished it in his son, that he, he, he provided for his own piercing, his own death, because that was the only way to accomplish this. Secondly, and this is something I think we've alluded to kind of throughout, be encouraged about the future. God who created all things, the creator of all things, he's also the consummator of all things. He's in control of all things and is bringing everything to his perfectly planned consummation. Speaking of God's people Israel, in Romans 11, Paul writes, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to Gentiles to make them jealous. And we didn't do this text in this series, but uh, I think I've mentioned it, that in Genesis 12, from the very first time, that the people of Israel started to be set apart in the promise to Abraham, the promise was not just for him. And Paul makes a big deal of this in Galatians. The promise was to him and that all nations, Gentiles, of course, included, would be blessed through him. So we didn't understand everything from Genesis 12. You know, Abraham wouldn't have understood all the details of how God was going to work this out, but he's worked it out gloriously in a way that we wouldn't have anticipated, that he hardened for a time his people Israel so that we could be brought in. The fullness of the Gentiles can share in this hope. But Paul, and this, this logic should really grip us. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be?
we live under glorious grace uh, in the new covenant, but things are not done yet. We live still bearing the burden of sin. We live still, and, and not in the sense that we haven't been forgiven, certainly we have, but we deal with sin daily in our lives. The disease and the struggle, the pain that is part of a cursed world, part of an existence where this ultimate consummation hasn't happened yet. So share with the, the Apostle Paul and the hope of how the scriptures describe these things coming to pass. Let's find our hope and understanding where God intends to find it in his promises and his plans for the future. Let's pray. Father, what a, a glorious picture of the wisdom of your salvation. Lord, nobody, nobody could conceive of a God, the creator of all things, who sits on the throne of the universe and does everything that he pleases, turning his own sword on himself. We thank you, Lord, that you are this kind of God. And Lord, that we have had the privilege of having held up before our eyes uh, in this text, Lord, and, and certainly not for the most first time for most of us, but having held up to our eyes this pierced one. And Lord, I pray that if we haven't lamented and mourned uh, over what put him there, over our sin, Lord, that we would uh, even now, and Lord, that by the glory of this salvation, that you would save some who are listening. Father, I pray also that you would help us to find our hope and our understanding of what comes in the future uh, where you've put that information in your word. I pray, Lord, that we would be more diligent students of your scripture, and Lord, that uh, the, the teaching in these three weeks, Lord, that the, the sufferings and the glories of the Messiah, uh, as shown in the Older Testament of your word, would be uh, truths that would inform us because they come from your spirit and you've intended them for our encouragement and our education and our upbuilding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.